0: to the Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this evening for Wednesday Bible study through the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, with Pastor John King. If I could get somebody to please pray for our message tonight. Pray for the word. Lord, we come to you right now, thanking you for the opportunity to go to your house to hear your word. As Pastor said earlier, we live on your word. We thank you for it. Bless us now. In the name of your son Jesus amen last week were we had Aaron's first sacrifices you know that was a big event after all the training that they'd been through he him and his sons were finally consecrated to have do their start their priestly duties and if you remember from chapter nine the very end you'll notice that the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle to the point where Moses couldn't even enter it and so what a glorious you know, sort of culmination of God's plan. And yet, here we go, right in the very next chapter, we have this tragic story of uh, Nadab and Abihu. As one writer put it, uh, we need to think about this in our day, but the judgment of God is a forgotten subject, there's little fear of God in the world today. Most people deny, reject, and ignore the judgment of God. The thoughts of judgment and fear of God are considered to be, by some to be unhealthy. Even the cause of some neurosis and psychosis among sensitive-natured people. This is the feeling that what needs to be stressed among society is only the love and forgiveness of God, not the judgment of God. As the excellent commentator Gordon Wenham says, in many parts of the church, the biblical view of divine judgment is conveniently forgotten or supposed to be something that passed away with the Old Testament. Hine's famous last words, God will forgive me, that's his job, have become the unexpressed axiom of modern te- or theology. And this short story is therefore an affront to all liberal thinkers, because it should also challenge Bible-believing Christians whose theological attitudes are influenced by prevailing trends of thought more often, perhaps, than they realize. So we go through uh, chapter 10, and we start with the first three verses. Playing with fire. We're playing with fire. The text reads... Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, or this is what the Lord meant, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Now, these Nadab and Abihu, they were the two uh, eldest of Aaron's four sons. And you know, they'd seen a lot in their time, you know, being Aaron's sons and Being with Moses, they got to go partway up Mount Sinai with the seventy elders. You remember that? They got to see what millions didn't get to see with the seventy elders, and they got to really see uh, from a distance the glory of God in a lot closer sense. So they've been, you know, they've seen all these wonderful things. But notice, uh, they just they just started to do it all wrong. (laughs) You know, they just everything they did was wrong, and it cost them their lives. Now, when you think about fire in the Bible, and you think about it here in the Old Testament, uh, it, you can look at it as something for sacred purposes. The sacrifices were consumed by fire. You had the ever-burning fire on the altar that was first kindled from heaven. Last week, we saw that. That ever-burning fire on the altar was first kindled by God himself, and they had to keep it going. And it was afterwards rekindled at the dedication of Solomon's temple. You'll see that in Chronicles. We see the expressions, fire from heaven, or fire of the Lord, and that generally denotes lightning, but sometimes also the fire of the altar, it was called. Fire for a sacred purpose was obtained otherwise than from the altar, or excuse me, when they obtained fire from the for sacred purposes, okay, you could make a fire to cook a meal, keep yourself warm, all those reasons. But when you obtain fire for sacred purposes, other than coming from the altar, it's referred to as strange fire. And you'll see that in a couple other instances. So they they created this strange fire, and then they put incense on it. Now, remember, the process for incense burning is you take these aromatic spices and you mix them together as per the, the, uh, the recipe that he was given. And then you put them in a censer, And then you take glowing lumps of coal and you put it in there and it vaporizes and it creates this incense. But the fire they were supposed to get was supposed to become from the altar, uh, the burning altar. And it's like they created their own fire. They they went and generated their own uh, source of fire. And this was prescribed in Exodus 30. Um, We saw it, it. It says, Aaron shall burn its sweet incense every morning When he tends the lambs, he shall burn incense on it. So God had given Moses instructions prior to this. And, you know, you start to see a problem. It's like Aaron was supposed to burn the incense, not his sons. So there's all kinds of issues uh, with what they chose to do. And, in fact, in chapter 30 of Exodus, in verse 9, it says, You shall not offer strange incense on it. So there was a certain, there was a right way and a wrong way. And they chose the wrong way. And they offered profane fire, profane, I said profane, profane fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded. Uh, you'll see it referred to in different Bible ver- versions as strange fire, the wrong kind of fire, unauthorized fire. But the key understanding is that God expects His ministers to obey Him promptly and exactly. So you could say, "Okay, that's that's for you, Pastor John." You know, you're a pastor, so that's on you, right? But remember, we're a kingdom of priests. (laughs) So we're all to obey God promptly and exactly as he tells us. You know, if you hear from the Lord and he wants you to do something specific in your life, he expects you to do it. And there's been times, I think you probably all have a testimony, when you were going down a path that the Lord didn't want you to go, he was trying to get you to do something, and you didn't do it, and you realized it. So these two young priests, they apparently had decided now to do their own moves, if you will. And they were decided to approach God contrary to the way he instructed Moses. And as I said, the source of the coals was supposed to be from the altar of burnt offering. And the reason why is the offer, altar of burnt offering, remember, it it symbolizes the atonement for sin. And so the incense symbolized the prayer. And so unless there's atonement for sin and a right relationship with God, he can't hear your prayers. So they're they're getting all backwards here. So by bringing their own strange fire, they were missing the mark. God only responds to prayer from his children based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. He only replied you know, if you if you're not in a right relationship with the Lord and you don't know him, uh, unless it's a prayer to receive salvation, he doesn't hear you. You know, it's it's just not working. And so, as a consequence, we saw in verse 2, fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. This was a consuming fire. And they died before the Lord. This was the fire of judgment. We talked about the different types of fire. This was the fire of judgment. Now Moses said to Aaron... Look, this is what the Lord said, or this is what the Lord meant when he said, those who come near me must be regarded as holy. So the priests only, they had a special responsibility. Remember, they were just consecrated for service. They had a special responsibility. They were the only ones who could enter into the holy places, and, of course, the high priest and the holy of holies once a year. And so they, uh, when they come near the Lord, they must regard God as holy. As sanctified. And these guys were just kind of perhaps stumbling in there, just kind of playing around, playing the game. And you can only, it's kind of strange, right? Right away, they've been trained up. They've been trained up, and now they're just, we'll get into that reasons why, or maybe we won't understand why. But I think we could make some pretty good, uh, uh, have a pretty good understanding as to why they did what they did. Also notice that God says, I must be glorified. That word glorified, kabad you've heard that. Yahweh will be given the respect he demands and deserves. He says, I will be honored, I will be glorified. And notice the Lord will not and does not share his glory with anyone. Even the priests who were given special access to serve him before the people. And in light of their public shame... God dwelt swiftly and publicly in judgment in order that the people would not try to follow this bad example. And this was the very beginning of this new ministry, this new priestly ministry, and you'll see it throughout the Bible when the church was born. You had times when Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. And this is, you know, when things, when God sets a new movement in motion, <clears throat> he's not going to allow it to get sidetracked, or at least not at first, right? And this is the case where he's like, we're going to deal with this problem right here and now. John Corson uh, wrote this. He said, is God saying he doesn't want any competition because he's insecure? Asking the question. And he answers, he says, no. It's because he knows if people depend on a person or a church or a ministry, they're sure to be disappointed. Right? You see that. Ultimately, you're going to be disappointed if all you are is relying on that person, that church or that ministry to give you, you know, the satisfaction. Now, there are reasons why uh, people leave churches. Uh, I, for one, have been one, have, have had to leave church before. So there are legit- legitimate reasons for having to leave a church. But you do notice a pattern among people in the body of Christ who, who hop around. They hop around. Because why? They've they put their stock in the person. they put their stock in the organization and what they think it's going to provide for them. And we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, what happened with these two young guys as well. And it, it's tied into that. Notice, though, that Aaron held his peace. Uh, the first time fire went out from the Lord was last chapter, in chapter 9. And this was proof of God's blessing. And what did the people do? They shouted. They shouted. This was a form of worship. They shouted for joy, and then they fell down and worshipped God. They shouted for joy, and they fell down and worshipped God. This was the second time that the uh, fire went out from the Lord, and it came in judgment. And now there was no shouting. There was silence, because God's judgment was righteous. Gordon went Gordon Wenham writes this. He says, Triumph and tragedy go hand in hand in the Bible and in life. On the very first day of Aaron's high priestly ministry, his two eldest sons died for infringing God's law. In the life of our Lord, his baptism by the Spirit was followed by temptation in the wilderness. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem by his crucifixion six days later. In the early church, the healing of a lame man was succeeded by the death of Ananias and Sapphira. So triumph and tragedy go hand in hand in the Bible. Now, what was this profane fire? What, what was it, this, this unauthorized fire? You know what? It's unknown. There are some commentators believe that they were intoxicated. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. But honestly, the nature of their offense is not directly specified. So it's, it's one of these things that people go back and forth. But the important point was that they were disobedient, plain and simple. God had not commanded them to do what they did. And the main principle points to this stricter standard or, uh, and swifter judgment to God's ministers One writer said it this way, the closer a man is to God, the more attention he must pay to holiness and the glory of God. We talked a little bit about that last night in our men's prayer. We're going, what's going on in this world? And, you know, we decide, we we certainly purpose to press into the Lord, especially in tough times. And you say, well, what can I be doing? Well, you can be working on maintaining your holiness and your purity before God, because if persecution does happen, you're going to need to have that closeness with God that's genuine, not just you know, social and a fun place to be. And God has given very clear instructions on how to worship him. John four twenty two through 25. Jesus said to the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then the story continues from there. False worship fails to recognize God's holiness and glory. It fails. totally. It just goes out the window. We say, you know, come as you are. I mean, we, we definitely say that. that is, that's what was said to us when we came into fellowship with Christ and we came into fellowship with the body of Christ. Come as you are, but we need to recognize that God does not want you to stay as you are. So part of your salvation is acknowledging your sinfulness before a holy God. And a salvation that just simply says, oh, come, and, you know, Jesus is love, and, you know, you can just continue on and not have to change is not true salvation. You come to salvation in Christ because you realize your sinfulness and your need. Verses 4 and 5. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzapan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near Carry your brother, brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. Uh, these are Aaron's cousins. And uh, we, as we learn the Levitical law, we learn the... the uh, the things the, un, the clean and the unclean and all that that's coming up in later chapters of Leviticus, the the moral pure or the ceremonial purity lessons, we're going to find that the priests are, generally speaking, forbidden to touch a dead body, and the high priest is never to touch a dead body, not to come not anywhere near, because he has to be able to minister and he doesn't have time to go get ceremonially reclaimed cleansed. He's got to be pure, but. There were exceptions when it was when you were dealing with a immediate family member, and there, that would, that would be allowed. And we'll see that in chapter twenty one. But uh, in this case, Moses' command was, "We're going to get your cousins. They're not priests, and we're going to let them drag them out by their tunics." So apparently, their bodies weren't totally vaporized, and they grabbed them by their tunics and they drug him out and they took him outside the camp so what's happened is God has has reset the tone for obedience you notice Moses made sure that things got quickly back on track and he sought and knew the ways to prevent the judgment of God moving forward in this early stage Verses six and seven, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithmar, his sons, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses The normal grieving process was not going to be allowed for this family, for this father and these two sons. Why is that? Why would that not be allowed? Because they deserved it. They want they, they didn't want to play the victim in front of the people because God's judgment wasn't going to be contradicted. And so they, would have, they could have gained the sympathy of, you know, the whole congregation of people. But there could be no expression of doubt as to the guilt of their brothers. They, they couldn't even look like they were condoning what had happened. And so they weren't supposed to draw sympathy from the people as though God was being unfair, which is a common situation in our world today. Why is God is so unfair? You know, all these things. Um... Tragedy in life can be very hard to swallow. We have a very limited vision this side of heaven, but God has the big picture. And so we trust him. Job 13, 15, Job would say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so I will defend my own ways before him. Joe knew that he wasn't wrong, but you know, think about it. Though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. Uh, Moses, the Lord uh, spoke, and, and Moses said that your brethren, the whole house of Israel, may weep and mourn over this. And many believe that the reason why the congregation was allowed to mourn was so they wouldn't quickly forget this situation. The other thing, the other restriction he says is you shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. So Now these were, these were like Imperatives that could cost them their life. So obedience was going to take place, and they knew that God could take their life. You know, they'd just been ordained. He says, you know, even the oil, the anointing oil was still on their bodies. I mean, this is a... Think about how far, you know, things can go, be going really good in a ministry or a fellowship or a marriage, and just like that, it can turn. I know a guy. He, he. We talk a lot about uh, problems in society and teen pregnancy. You know, which oftentimes leads to abortion. And this pastor, he said, he tells his youth group, especially uh, the the teenage boys and girls. He says, just think about it. You're only one drink away from an unwanted pregnancy. That's all it takes. One drink. And so. You know, we just need to be on guard. We need to be on guard. And so they were obedient. They did according to the word of Moses. Now, they're, you can imagine losing two of your sons and having to be sort of silent about the whole thing, not allowed to grieve. And this really showed their devotion and their total dedication to God. When you and I are presented with a choice between dedication and service to the Lord or friends and relatives, and we've got to be careful with this, or friends and relatives, uh, think about what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 34 and 39. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So when you're given that choice, and, and, you know, the Lord's pretty gracious. He doesn't often make us make that choice. But, you know, if you're going to give your life to the Lord, you know, I, I, my experience was <laughs> my family doesn't like me anymore. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be around me. And, and there's reasons why that, that I have been obnoxious to them. So there's been legitimate reasons why they don't want to be around me. And then there's just been reasons why they just don't want to hear the gospel of the Lord. And so, I can't love them more than I love Jesus. You guys know that. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, it may seem strange to us that God killed Nadab and Abihu instead of merely warning them. But often, at the beginning of a new era in salvation history, the Lord brought judgment in order to warn the people. And we said this, the, the tabernacle, the priestly ministry was about to begin, and the Lord wanted to make sure that the priests understood the seriousness of their work. And this, we see this, you know, a cycle. When, when they entered the promised land, God used Achan's disobedience as a warning, and the death of Uzzah was uh, his warning when the ark was brought to Jerusalem. Remember when he touched the ark. Early in the church age, we said earlier, the death of Ananias and Sapphira served as a warning to the saints not to try and lie to God. Now we come to verses 8 through 11. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. That you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Only here in Leviticus does God speak to Aaron directly, by himself. Everywhere else, it's always with or through Moses but God is speaking directly to Aaron and this shows the importance of what follows that Aaron and this is a really encourage this should be encouraging for all of us Aaron despite his son's misdeeds was still the high priest and he was still able to mediate between God and man and when we have our prodigals and our kids who don't turn out the way we had Raise them and hope that they would be, it does come to a point where they're on their own. They have to stand before God in their own sinful ways that they choose. And that doesn't take away your ability to minister and to mediate and to serve God. And Aaron, think about God's grace with Aaron. He led a rebellion or he allowed a rebellion to take place and had him worshiping a golden calf. Yet afterwards, he was still made the first high priest. And his two oldest sons you know, rebelled immediately and it cost them their life. Yet he was being God spoke to him and he was allowed to minister. So that should be encouraging for for some of us. But notice he says, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. Um, <clears throat> this is where people would say, commentators would say, that the fact that this particular warning came right on the heels of them burning the fire, the incense was, they may well have been intoxicated when they went into the Holy of Holies. So you know, you can you can go you, some commentators hold this position very strongly. Um, I tend to agree that's probably what they did. But I, I can't say for certain. Uh, intoxicating drink uh, when you Read about it in the Old Testament. It's it's usually together. It's like wine and strong drink, like two separate things. This strong drink is called shikar. And there's no doubt that it was intoxicating. Um, And all throughout the Old Testament, you see the effects of it. Isaiah describes the stupefying effect of shikar on those who drink it excessively. Uh, First of all, alcohol, this is here alcohol, Christians and alcohol. It's not a sin to drink alcohol, it's a sin to get drunk. But if you were to ask me, should I drink alcohol, and you were to ask me personally, I would try to talk you out of it as a Christian. But I would never tell you that you can't drink as an adult, but I certainly would remind you that drunkenness is a sin. So that's my position on it. I don't drink, but I have a lot of reasons for that. And I would try to talk you out of it if you have a habit of uh, drinking, but I won't look... Uh, anyway. <clears throat> Hannah defended herself against the charge of strong drink by saying, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, neither wine nor any other intoxicating link- liquor. Uh, then you have this: the attempt by some to... Uh, Prove that it's simply unfermented juice, like when we take the elements and we take grape juice. It's you know it's not alcohol, but history proves it's not really a foundational truth in that. I think there's a lot of discussion on that as well. Its immoderate use is strongly condemned. It was forbidden to ministering priests, as we see here, while they were on priest duty. Uh, It was forbidden to the Nazarites while they were in their Nazarite vows. But it was also used in the sacrificial meal as a drink offering, Numbers 28, 7, and could be bought with the tithe money and consumed by the worshiper in the temple, but not to get drunk. It was commended to the weak and perishing as a means of deadening their pain, but not to princes lest it might lead them to pervert justice, Proverbs 31, 4 and 7. So basically, any time they or their priestly descendants had temple duty, when we get to the temple age, they were to abstain. And God gives the very, Moses gives a reason. He says that they may distinguish between holy and unholy. In other words, to avoid poor judgment from the alcohol consumption, because what it does is it dulls your senses, and it 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 can uh, set you off off uh, off the the beaten path. He also continues on. He says that you should be able to discern between clean and unclean. And when they're handling food, there's going to be different types. And we're going to see all this as we unfold uh, Leviticus. But they had to protect the sacred space and the sacred objects from being treated as ordinary. the other thing, the, the responsibilities, he says, notice in verse 11, and says, and that you may teach the children of Israel. So not only were they the priests that were ministering the sacrifices, but they were also to instruct the people by teaching the Torah or the law. And so that's, you know, that's going to develop. A little more on sobriety and how important it is. You guys, we're going to be in chapter 5 of Ephesians later this month. He says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we mentioned Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. I'll read that. It says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. It's a fact that, uh, unfortunately, as we pray for our leaders in our nation, it's a true fact that there's a high rate of alcohol use and abuse among lawmakers and government officials throughout Washington, D.C. It's very well known. And again, they're the ones that are making very important decisions for our country. Our next section, verses 12 through 18, I'm not going to read through entirely for the sake of time. We'll just hit the highlights. But notice uh, what's happening here, and this is Moses now is going to give commands to Aaron. And what he's going to do is he's going to kind of follow a lot more closely with their, their procedures. Because these two young sons have just now been brought into the fold. And they're the only ones presently that can minister because... The two, the other half of the sons were just burned up, and so he's going to follow him and, and double check on him here, and you'll see he's going to kind of give him a verbal uh, of the of Yahweh's instructions, and he kind of looks back to what we saw in chapter six and seven. Um, you know, for instance, in verse. Twelve. It says, and Moses spoke to Aaron and and uh, his sons who were left, and said, Take the grain offering that remains and the offerings made by the fire to the Lord, and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. Those instructions were previously given. He's just reiterating to them, and he's telling them, you need to go eat in the holy place. This was, this was something they had to do. They had to eat this uh, meal. Um, It is your son's due and your due. For the sacrifices. This is how the priests were able to receive food, was through the sacrifices. In verse 14, again, following uh, from uh, chapter 7, all the procedures, uh, what was done, and how to do it. And notice uh, by the time you get to verse 16, it says Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was, burned up. So he's kind of doing a follow-up inspection. You know, he's he's probably feeling like, you guys can't do anything. Like, you've been instructed and you're not doing it. And so he's just kind of following up. Um, Now, he was wanting to make sure that the sacrifice had been handled appropriately. And when he looked at it, he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, and he's, he's alarmed at this failure to follow this proper protocol. It's almost like they weren't even following instructions to how they were trained. And he likely, as one writer puts it, he likely feared that God would strike down these two sons for any error, just that he had struck Nadab and Abihu for their violation. Because Eleazar and Ithamar were the last two sons of Aaron, and their deaths would have put the future of the priesthood from Aaron's line in jeopardy. And so he asked the question in verse 17, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the holy place? Now this is where they were supposed to you know, God's, God's instructions were exactly to be followed to the letter. And this was part of the atonement process. And then he goes on, he says, Since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. And then he he shouts at him. he says in verse 18, See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. In other words, they're busted. But thank you. Thankfully, they're busted by Moses and not the Lord himself. And so we see the end of the chapter, Aaron's reply. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? And so when Moses heard it, he was content. Now what's going on here? Basically, Aaron had just witnessed the death of his two oldest sons. And, you know, it's no wonder he lacked the appetite to eat. Okay? So, and when Moses heard that, he, he accepted his reply. He said, you know, he was content. Aaron explained that he couldn't eat the offering with a good conscience because of the sorrow that had happened to befallen him that day. The Lord knew his heart. And he wasn't going to attempt to fool God by playing the hypocrite, writes Warren Weir'sby. Aaron knew that a mere mechanical observance of the ritual would not have pleased God. For the Lord looks on the heart and wants obedience, but not sacrifice. The law didn't allow Aaron to express his grief in the usual ways, but it didn't forbid him to fast. And fasting was his way of showing his grief for the loss of his two sons. Amazing, isn't it? As we conclude, a couple of comments. Uh, Pastor John Corson, he he brings up some questions for us to consider. You know, what could have led to these two young men to do what they did? Why would they go off the rails so quickly? You know, you, you, you always scratch your head when you see that happen to somebody. Somebody's been walking with the Lord, and all of a sudden, they're just nowhere to be found. And then you find them you know, totally off the rails, what was the motivation that caused him to do this? Uh, And I think uh, he brings up some good questions that you can kind of put in our modern context for Christian service, if you will. Uh, Part of it was, you know, he asked the question, this is Pastor Corson, he says, was it simply because they wanted to be a part of the action? I mean, they were eyewitnesses to some amazing sights and sounds. Did they just want to be what was happening, you know, what was going on in that particular, you know, you could think in a modern context, hey, it's all happening over in that church. And you know what happens, like people, like I was saying, they go from church to church and sometimes they go as groups. (laughs) You know, they make their rounds. They want to see the stuff that's going on. And so he asked a very legitimate question concerning Christian service. He says, when the action shifts to somewhere else, do you leave the ministry behind to go see what's happening? He asks another question. He says, was it because they had a need to be used by God for personal fulfillment? You know, we can justify that, right? What happens when there's a need for service somewhere else within the ministry, within the context of the church? There's some empty holes that aren't being filled. But you say, no... I'm only called to that particular ministry. I'm not going to go where there's a need. And the reason you do it is because of your desire for personal fulfillment. Was it because they had a burden for the lost? Now, that's even a better reason why we should serve, right? But what are you going to do when the lost don't respond as quickly as you expect? And I've seen this over and over again, and I think we're all... If you jump out into any form of evangelism and you don't see things happening the way they should happen, you can get depressed really quick because you believe God has put you on this mission and you have a burden for the lost. And he makes a point. He says these motivations can be like a strange fire and it can lead to burnout. You hear it all the time. Christian burnout. I'm burned out. I'm burned out. You know, I quit. Pastors quitting. People... And, you know, the thing is that I think he makes a good point. You have to you have to kindle the fire, not the strange fire of your emotions, not the strange fire of your personal fulfillment, not the strange fire of wanting to be where it's all happening. You have to come to the altar at Calvary at the, at the cross. You, know, you come for... the the communion fellowship. You remind yourself what the Lord has done. Remember the price that he paid with his broken body and his shed blood. He goes on to write, he says, Jesus died for me so that I wouldn't have to go to hell. He died for me so I could go to heaven. He died for me so that my sins would be washed away. How can I not serve him? True ministry has nothing to do with the need to be involved, the need to be fulfilled, or even a desire to help people. True ministry is all about what Christ did for us when he laid down his life for us at Calvary. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for our word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the words of wisdom that were shared from Pastor John. We thank you for, most importantly, the the. The message, the principles that we learned from this message tonight, how we can put our perspective, how we can get our perspective back where it belongs when it comes to serving you. Lord, may we do that. May we desire that. May we desire to serve you out of just a sense of gratitude for what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to be the people, the men and women that you call us to be. We thank you, Lord, that you laid your life down for us. We thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to have eternal life. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We ask now that you go before us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.